Hello and welcome to the Points of Brew podcast with me, Stephen Carter. It's episode 46 and this time I'm joined from across the pond by Ryan Spira from Parish Brewing in Louisiana, America. Ryan is Parish's head brewer and a recently qualified Master Cicerone. There are only 22 worldwide, so massive congratulations Ryan. In this episode, Ryan tells me about his brewing history, his ongoing passion and enthusiasm for home brewing, and how their now synonymous beer, Ghost in the Machine, first started out as a West Coast IPA. Now a hazy number, it's a far cry from its origins, which, in many ways, is a shame. Ryan was recording live from the brewery, so there is a small amount of background noise, but nothing too major. I always enjoy speaking to people from America to compare the beer and brewing landscapes, and this was no different. So thanks to Ryan for joining me, and here I am with him now. Right, Ryan, welcome to the Points Brew podcast. How are you doing? You okay? Good. Pleasure to be here. No, thank you very, very much for uh, for joining me. I appreciate it and coordinating difference in time scales. It's uh, 6 p.m. over here in the UK. Is it around midday, your sort of local time? Yeah, it's high noon over here. High noon. Yeah, yeah, cool. What's the, uh, what's the weather like over there? Because it's been a bit warmer than usual over here, so I imagine we've not been too far behind. Uh, Has it? Uh, it's normal for here around mm. this time 100 degrees and 200 percent humidity it feels like and <laughs> it rains like almost like clockwork every afternoon we just have a yeah. downpour and then the sun comes back out and we're all in a sauna interesting conditions to brew beer in though i imagine when it's uh when it's hot enough in the brewery it's uh... oh yeah and we don't have climate control so it just gets hot and muggy in there <laughs> no i imagine so i imagine so but once again ryan thank you very very much for for joining me uh on the podcast um uh, but do you want to jump straight in and tell us a little bit about your brewing history your background and then onto your current role at parish sure so i started off home brewing in college it was like the last year or so of my uh college years i was getting a bachelor's degree in general biology at the local university here in lafayette louisiana and i i was i was a drinker of craft beer at that time and i kind of had the thought hey i want to try and make some of this stuff myself. Cause there were some beers that were only released seasonally. And I was like, no, oh, but I want them all the time. So yeah. I said, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to make them myself. And then I'm going to solve that problem that way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I still remember the first kit I did. It was a extract kit for an American IPA. And it turned out almost looking like a brown ale. Well, maybe like a red ale, like it was dark. Mm. And looking back, it didn't taste very great, but I thought it was the most <laughs> awesome thing in the world that I made that myself. I was so, yeah. so proud of myself. <laughs> I've gotten better at brewing beer <laughs> over time, but, uh, you know, I, I started like anybody else. And I was just, you know, doing extract on a pot in my apartment on the stove and, uh, you know, moved on the all grain at, at some point. And uh, about a couple of years into homebrewing, I think I'd been homebrewing for two years. Uh, I found out about Parish Brewing Company, which is, you know, in the area um, and talked to the owner. They were very small at that time and ended up getting a job there a few months later. And I've been there ever since. And actually, today is my 10 year anniversary here. Oh, congratulations. I've been I've been here <laughs> 10 years to the day today. Yep. And so I started off 
just helping out. There were only four of us at that time. So everybody was doing a little bit of everything, but I started off helping whenever they started bottling. So they needed mm. another person to do that because before it was just kegs. Yeah. And um, sort of as time went on, focused more on the brewing side, you know, so I became mm. a brewer whenever roles started to specialize as we grew. And then uh, the guy who was the head brewer at the time left after a couple of years. And so I took his position. I've been in that head brewer position ever since. So I'm kind of more of like an operations manager, I would say, you know, so mm. I'm doing a lot of like the materials ordering, making sure we have everything for what's planned to brew. I'm also, you know, sort of the last word on the brew house side on whether, you know, things are going well or, you know, different decisions on, whether to add hops here substitute malts that sort of thing um, mm. and then yeah. i do like recipe development you know and like sensory feedback stuff too at the brewery yeah, yeah. cool excellent so how many people sort of are involved in the brewing process directly as well as yourself then now what, what sort of numbers are you looking at so like the way we run things here so like the cellar and the brew house are separate so okay. i guess the brew house is more like work production mm -hmm. so we're brewing you know mashing uh yep. boiling adding hops knocking out to the firmer and then he basically gets handed off to the cellar team so they're pitching yeast mm -hmm. monitoring at that point but there's four people um excluding me so there's five of us on the brew house and then there's three cellar people Mm. And then packaging is a separate department, you know, sales and everything. There's like 30 people at the company. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Currently. Yeah. I always find it interesting when sort of looking at American breweries and sort of the scale of which they operate. Because we are, I think there's a misconception in this country that we're, every brewery in America is massive and has got loads of employees and hundreds of members of staff and things like that. Mm. But it's always interesting that a lot of them, like yourselves, clearly aren't too too dissimilar to what to what we are here you know i mean if you've got 30 employees that's still relatively small scale isn't it i suppose for the i imagine what the size and the output that you're producing so what what sort of scale do you produce on i suppose is, a, is another question so about twenty-one thousand barrels which you have to multiply that by 1.2 to get hectoliters so i mm. think that's what you're doing so i don't know the exact math but what 2500 hectoliters something like mm. that yeah, it's quite a, so I think when Kyle sent me some information, I'll be available in quite a, a few different states beyond your own, your own state of Louisiana. So is, is that a, still an ongoing sort of growth or do you sort of just do and sort of produce enough to sustain what you're currently? Yeah, currently, because we're kind of maxed out on production without, mm. we can't, we can't really produce much more without making like a big, you know, growth step. So mm -hmm. we're kind we're kind of at this plateau right now. Um, but yeah, we're distributing, if you look on the map on the United States, so the Gulf of Mexico, you know, in the south. So we're basically kind of just all along the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, which is where we are, and uh, East Texas. Mm. And then we have a couple of specific spots in the country too, like Denver, Colorado. We distribute a little bit of beer, Phoenix, Arizona, and a little bit in Georgia. So that's mm. our, that's basically our footprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's always a, you guys have a, a much bigger country, a much more vast area to cover. But obviously, you still have your own individual states that come, you know, govern their own laws on alcohol and shipping and sales and things. Which obviously yeah. that, that doesn't help either. Whereas obviously we can just send something from, you know, one end of the country to another, which is for us is a long distance. But for you, that'd just be from 
basically interstate, wouldn't it? Really, that'd just be, you know, yeah, yeah, that'd just be for one state for you. Whereas for us, that's like from Scotland down to Cornwall, from end of the country to the other. So, um, obviously, you got you've started as a home brewer, um, like you said there, which, like you say, a lot of a lot of people start off doing that. So when when you started home brewing, then were you trying to just replicate? the american style ipas that were over there then or were you trying to replicate a lot of other styles so maybe sort of like english styles and lags and pilsners and things like that or were you just purely just trying to brew this the american style and sort of new england ipa that sort of thing were you just purely doing that or no i wasn't i wasn't like locked in on anything in particular i just liked beer so like i want to <laughs> i want to just try and make everything yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah, I loved exploring beer because like at that point, too, I was just discovering all kinds of new stuff. You know, mm. uh, the first craft brewery that I really got into was a brewery in Texas called St. Arnold Brewing Company, because mm-hmm. um, I went to I was in college at Texas A&M for a while. So that was like the big craft beer brand at the mm. time over there. Um and so like they were, they were producing some different beers. They had their flagships, you know, they were doing American IPAs. They had like an amber ale, a brown ale, just like an American wheat ale. Like, and so I just, I liked them all. Mm. And, you know, every now and then something new would come down the pipeline and be like, what is this? Mm. You know, they even did some weird ones. Like they had one called Santo and they labeled it as a black Kolsch, you know, mm. which is kind of one of those weird hybridizations that doesn't really make sense on face but you know it's like what the heck <laughs> yeah. is this thing so it's just yeah. fun I, yeah. I like all that stuff i enjoy yeah. it yeah well that's it i suppose that's the beauty of this world isn't it really that you're not you obviously beyond your sort of core beers that you that you stick to that you have at either certain times here all year round is that you are able to just completely open the rule book and sort of just be like yeah what are we doing and like you say dark lagers and milkshake ipas and all sort of different crazy wonderful fruited sours and ipas you can just almost just chuck as much creativity as as you want that can't you really so yeah you are just a an open book a lot of the time but obviously like i touched on there um core beers core rangers uh with parish um the first beer that you guys started was cane break i think i'm right in saying yep, um that's correct. so is that obviously we'll come on to ghost in the machine in a sort of in a little while which i think is probably what you guys are more sort of synonymous for but cane break in terms of obviously it's sort of a um a hearkening to your local area so john tell us a little bit about that before we come on to the more sort of recognized beer of uh, ghost in the machine sure so yeah cane break is we call it a louisiana wheat ale so it's um it's basically an american wheat ale um it's brewed with a uh, British ale yeast. We're actually using like the equivalent of London ale three right now, although mm-hmm. the, uh, the yeast has changed over the years. Um, we've used a couple different ones over the, over the course of uh, production. Um, but that's the one we're using now. And the beer is about 30% wheat malt. The mm-hmm. rest is two row and it's got a little bit of color malt in there just to add a little, you know, residual sweetness and some honey notes. And then we also add Steen's sugarcane syrup. It's a locally produced sugarcane syrup in Louisiana because there's a mm-hmm. lot of that, you know, there's a lot of sugarcane production here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we add some of that in the kettle. So that all gets fermented out. It doesn't add any sweetness, but it does add some very subtle, like fruity rummy notes on the mm. back end of the beer. Yeah. And low bitterness, lightly hopped. Um, mm. So it's just a nice, easy drinking beer. We did well with it here as a craft brewery because when we when we came onto the scene in Louisiana, there wasn't really much of a 
craft beer market here in Louisiana at all. Mm. Um, so it was an easy beer for people who weren't familiar with craft beer to kind of transition to from your standard domestic lagers. Yeah. You know, it wasn't bitter. It was just a little sweeter, but it was still easy to drink. You know, it had a little more character, but there was nothing that would, it wasn't turning off a lot of people, you know, who weren't accustomed <laughs> to that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't going to scare it anybody out. off. <laughs> right. So, so that worked out very well for us. So it was a strong product in the beginning. Um, mm. But like you've alluded to, so, so it's funny. So back then people like they would find out, they'd be like, Oh, you work for cane break. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, well, parish brewing company is the name of our <laughs> brewery, but yeah, they would say that. And now people say like, Oh, you work for ghost in the machine. So it's changed, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ghost is the big product. It's taken over everything. Yeah. So, so again, we'll, we'll come on to the ghost of the machine, but you touched on there about there not being much of a scene in, in Louisiana for, for craft beer. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the respective coasts, East and West sort of have a renowned, you know, West Coast IPA and West Coast Pale Ale and that Sierra Nevada, Pliny the Elder, etc. That sort of the original American style IPA before it then went to sort of mm-hmm. the East Coast of New England IPA. And obviously then you got the sort of hybrid in, in between a Vermont style and, and that sort of thing. So you guys are sort of geog- geographically in louisiana sits somewhere in between the two coasts so do you find that that's yeah it that, that sort of is a a knock-on effect of the sort of the reception to craft beer or what sort of what's what's it mm. as how has it grown basically is what i'm sort of thinking of yeah i think just the craft beer scene is spread you know mm. people more and more people like uh, lots of areas so like we were behind we're catching up there's there are a lot more breweries here now mm. but we don't have any like traditional beer you know brewing mm. culture here so it's all new stuff like it's all yeah. hazy ipas fruit sours and like pastry mm. you know yeah 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 because um, you go to different parts of the country and like you know the west they have west coast ipas so a lot of breweries are brewing that we've kind of taken on the east coast ipas um so i think like every brewery here has like four different versions of that Mm. and then some fruit sours but some areas you know even in the country now it's like they may drink more amber ales for example or something mm. um, yeah 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 well that's i think because obviously from looking at historically how sort of america was colonizing things obviously the country took on and accepted many different styles and didn't necessarily create anything and it's always interesting that i always find that when people come over to england they want to try a lot of cask beer because obviously you know you guys yeah. don't have a lot of cask beer in america because of the you know conditioning the temperatures and keeping it and storing it and things so i'm, I'm imagining that especially in your area sort of cask beer is basically non-existent it's it's very very nope. few and yeah, far between that's not a thing <laughs> no I, I thought so and is that something that you i mean i don't know if you've been to sort of england or tried those styles that's something that rings true in, in your area that you are sort of wanting to try those styles more than necessarily what you have available on on your doorstep yeah i wish we had more stuff uh because i mean i you get tired of hazy ipas all the time you know they Mm. all kind of just start tasting the same um Mm. i have had cask beer in the united states like there was a there's a british style pub in denver colorado that like Mm. i went i went out of my way to go there because i knew they had cast beer and they had like their cellar underground and everything you know and it was mm. good but i've never been to england and tried mm. you know tried it in it in your native country um i would like to one day <laughs> i don't i don't get out of the country much <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say maybe when the world's gone back to some sort of normality what whatever right. that normality might actually be but yeah it's always interesting that i mean we we don't really sort of look at cask beer 
affectionately or as affectionately what other countries do at our sort of traditional brewing styles and methods and serving, which we should do really because it is part of our history and obviously our culture. But all we mm. are always like, oh, these hazy IPAs and these American hops and Southern Hemisphere hops and all this crazy stuff. And whereas like, we've, we've got some really nice cask beers that are really nice that we've been serving for hundreds of years, you know, of a similar style and nature, but we always seem to look outwards rather than inwards. And I think, I think that might change at some point. But the key point in question, which we'll come on to, which we alluded to twice now, but we'll come on to it, is Ghost in the Machine, which I have mm. got a can at the side of me, which I'm drinking, which is the first time I've actually tried Ghost in the Machine after many, many attempts at trying to get it, which is probably you can appreciate getting it here awesome. in the UK is, uh, is very difficult. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about when it was first brewed? it's sort of it's reception and then sort of when it sort of started taking over away from Cambridge and now you've been known as the ghost in the machine brewery as opposed to uh, parish brewing company right yeah so so uh ghost started off let's see i think the first time we brewed it was 2014 if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. so yeah that's like eight years ago now um mm -hmm. and it started off as an an imperial ipa like more of a west coast style the first couple okay. times we brewed it and it was actually in 750 milliliter champagne bottles you can imagine that with that yeah, with that yeah. same like ghost <laughs> ghost the uh, label design and everything on it yeah, yeah. um and yeah so very bitter you know mm. and like resiny hoppy just intense the idea was to just like knock your face off with you know mm. like a big west coast double ipa but then um heady topper from the alchemist was like getting a ton of buzz in the beer scene around mm. that time and uh so we took notice and we actually got our hands on a can down here um I, I don't remember how that happened i guess somebody brought it to the tap room or through a beer trade or something but uh and then we i remember we all gathered around the tap room like all right what is this <laughs> what is this hazy IPA stuff people are talking about, mm. you know, are making so much buzz about it. And I remember we opened it and tried it and we were like stunned. We were like, how did they get all this just like fruity mm. aroma and flavor in here? Like, yeah, I remember our minds being blown. And back then there was still a lot of mystery and mystique about how they were produced. You know, it almost seemed yeah. like some dark art secret that you had to just be in the know <laughs> to, to do. And so we just started, we just started trying to reverse engineer that thing and mm. uh we eventually figured it out it took a few tries you know a couple of a couple of batches dropping clear and that sort of thing but mm. you know and we gradually adjusted it and it became what it is now uh and it hasn't really changed much since then it's been a pretty stable recipe so ghost mm. in the machine has been what it is since ooh, at least 2016 i want to say mm. and it yeah, started yeah. off we were just doing you know like brewery only like individual releases of it you know we'd have mm. people lining up around the block waiting to get cases of beer and and then eventually we released it for a whole summer out into distribution so that was called the mm. summer of ghost and that went really really well and then the following year it just went out to general distribution mm. and it's just been year-round available since then yeah, and yeah. it's now our biggest product it's surpassed cane break and yeah so it is like by far our number one production beer now yeah, yeah it's interesting that it started life as a west coast ipa though that it started as that complete opposite bitter resinous like say piney all that stuff blow your face off with 
bitterness, whereas now it, to some people, it probably blow the face off with fruitiness and tropical notes and everything right. else, which I do lean more towards West Coast IPAs, sort of like the bitterness. I do love that, you know, sort of, again, mm-hmm. Sierra Nevada, Pliny the Elder, the bitter, the more bitter, the better, in my opinion, you know, a lot of beers, whereas, but that I do love a New England IPA and that is just incredible. You know, it's, it, 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 you know, rightly or wrongly, a lot of sort of beers over here from America get a lot of hype and a lot of sort of, oh my God, I need to get this, I need to get that. And sometimes you have something like, hmm, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but that is is 100% worth every bit of the sort of the rounds that you see it doing when there's a batch come over and you see people drinking it and it's like, you need to get your hands on a can of it and 100%, if people sort of like that style, I 100% get the hype and sort of the attention that it gets when it comes over to these shores. But you do um, a, you do a double dry hopped version, I believe, is that right? Yep, so DDH yeah. goes. So that one we release two times a year usually. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and is that basically the same recipe, but just obviously double dry hops, the double the yep. quantity is that? Exactly. It. No weird magic there. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> just it's amped up to 11 and people mm. love it. And and, and obviously there's, there's Ghost of the Machine has changed then from being that originally more West Coast to East Coast. Do you have something that sort of filled the gap that, that Ghost of the Machine left for the West Coast? Do you still have a, a West Coast IPA that's sort of really bitter then? Or has you sort of dropped that in favour of this more East Coast style of popularity. Yeah, we just dropped it in favor of East Coast. So we kind of just leaned into the East Coast style. So we had another beer called, well, we still have it, uh, Envy, which is which is basically like our clone of Sierra Nevada. And mm. whenever, whenever we did Ghost in the Machine and made it hazy and it just, you know, people went nuts over it, we said, mm. well... <laughs> let's do the same thing the V, and then sales skyrocketed yeah. for that too so you know yeah yeah around here if you if you hazify it 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 sells a lot better mm. so yeah we just dropped the west coast mm. so yeah, we yeah. have we have so in terms of regular release so we have on hazy pale ale and then we have dr juice which is an ipa a hazy mm-hmm. ipa and then ghost in the machine is our double ipa mm. yeah, yeah and and do you sort of venture off from that to do specials then or is it pretty much just those sort of few core releases that because of the demand so high that you just almost a constant production of those there is a constant production of those but we have room so we're doing we do seasonal releases um mm. different hazy double ipas mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but we also do like you know fruit sours like we have a series mm. called sips where it's usually it's not always but it's usually a wine grape coupled with a fruit so they're these fruited sours you know where you're mm. pairing a wine grape with a complimentary fruit um like right now we're actually gearing up to release sauvignon blanc passion fruit into the market mm. so i'll be hitting store shelves in the near future over here yeah, um yeah. and then we've done like we have like some mochi beers we did which those are in collaboration with great notion up in portland oregon where it's like a it's a sour with lactose and a lot of rice in the grist mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of evoking mochi and then you know we'll add fruit puree to do like a blueberry mochi or a mm. strawberry mochi yeah yeah that sort of thing cool so i suppose that's a good point and uh, in the uk breweries collaborate a lot and obviously with uh, obviously country being a lot smaller collaborations can happen quite regularly and quite frequently do you guys get to do that then sort of actually collaborate with other breweries in person and go visit or is it because obviously because of there's so many breweries do you find it hard to actually get to see other breweries really is there or... yeah it's it's getting more difficult although we're still able to do it um we, we mm. collaborate semi-regularly but um 
especially since after COVID happened, we started doing mm. more just remote collabs, you know, where yeah. we're, we're hashing out the recipe, you know, over email and stuff, but nobody goes to each other's breweries. Mm. You know. mm. um, but we did start doing some in-person collabs again. Um, yeah. Back in September, we went up to um, Weldworks okay. yeah, in yeah. Colorado. Um, mm-hmm. So did a collab with them. And uh, yeah, and we've got a couple other collabs like kind of that we're in the process of working out like a plan mm. for at the moment. So yeah, it's yeah. still happening like every couple months, I'd say on average. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing that I didn't have down to discuss, but really it's, I suppose it's a, an important thing, especially in this country, is that I don't know if you guys are seeing a, a rising cost for materials, raw ingredients. We're certainly seeing that here in the UK, which I'm assuming is a, is a global problem, shall we say, something that everyone is having to overcome. So is that changing the way in which you guys operate in terms of sort of reducing the materials or sort of increasing costs? Because I know that's a, a big question now. What, what a lot of brewers here are saying is that do we just absorb some of the costs so the prices don't change? Do we reduce the amount of hops that we use or the grain that we use, etc.? Because I know that gas and electric here especially are going to, massively increase in price come the winter so is that something that you guys are having to sort of look at now and maybe alter the way that you work or what, what's the situation yeah over there? we we haven't had to like alter recipes or anything like that mm. yet um right now like in our market there's like prices are increasing at the mm. store shelf so you know we, we're going through price increases right now which is helping offset the cost it doesn't it doesn't um compensate for everything so we're still absorbing mm. some of those costs um, yeah but yeah some things i've been doing like just you know the mundane things is just buying more like chemicals and other you know materials in larger quantities so you take advantage of price breaks you know and just order mm. less frequently so things like that mm. you know which that's kind of one of those positive feedback things too that you're seeing in the market where availability gets more scarce because everybody starts stockpiling everything you know and the supply chains are strained already Mm. so it just makes stuff that much harder to get like like one common ingredient um here in the united states like for sugar is we use Mm -hmm. dextrose um which is basically glucose and it's made from corn typically here. But um, like one of my suppliers told me this was a couple months ago, we're probably not going to be able to get dextrose for the rest of the year. I was like, Holy moly. Um, (laughs) But fortunately, you know, so we're substituting with sucrose right now, which is cane Mm. sugar, but yeah, you know, that's kind of crazy. So some Mm. things, you know, you, you, we will just, it's inevitable. We'll have to just substitute and use other ingredients. Fortunately, Mm sucrose for dextrose it doesn't really make it much of a difference so yeah yeah you know that's no big deal well that's it is when you can sort of almost a similar product i suppose it doesn't make a difference but like when you're having to change recipes for hops especially for obviously for us when when obviously a lot of hops that we use in this country are from the likes of america australia new zealand i suppose you Mm. probably don't see as much of a price hike as what we may do because obviously you'll probably see a hike in terms of from the obviously yeah i've been surprised hop hop prices have been pretty stable so far yeah. you know hopefully they stay that way knock on the wood but yeah um, fingers crossed you know, yeah grain grain has been going up a lot um like even i saw our base malt um has gone up like it went up like 33 percent for contracting mm. for next year so that was a huge jump you know that's a big yeah. material cost for us mm. so we are yeah, seeing yeah. cost increases on 
on some raw materials for sure. So do you do you use grain and malt from from America? You don't import it from outside of America, is it? All, yeah, uh, we, all use, we use some imported stuff. Uh, I get some British stuff like Simpsons and Crisp, William Crisp. Um, those are two that we use. But yeah, our base malt comes from. Mm. US and Canada is where it's grown. I suppose if you sort of the majority of your stuff is homegrown, then obviously those those rising costs aren't necessarily going to impact you as much as those that sort of rely on purely Simpsons, Fawcett's, you know, et al, you know, those sort of places that they are imported. And we're seeing massive struggles here. And, you know, we've just had a, a, a heat wave in this country, what we'll call a heat wave for you guys. It's probably just a normal sort of few weeks in, in America, but there's sort of droughts going on. There's water shortages. There's going to be hose pipe bans, you know, reservoirs are drying up. So, you know, for us sort of the concurrent years supply of harvest of grain and things is probably going to dry up. But for you guys, it's probably just a, like say a normal sort of normal week a normal month you know we're expecting thunderstorms here now but again if you're getting massive rainfall every afternoon again it's just a a normal week i suppose yeah uh, <laughs> i mean so where i am it's the we have the second highest precipitation in the united states the only place mm. that gets more rain is hawaii is the big island on hawaii mm. but yeah like i said in the summer it basically rains every afternoon here yeah during the summer and then it it settles down as we get in the fall but mm. yeah i have a lot of trouble mowing my grass right now it's just a swamp all the time <laughs> it's kind of frustrating sometimes yeah. whereas we uh, we've not had any rain for two weeks i think maybe at the moment which is basically unheard of in this country so everyone's like <laughs> grass is pretty much dead that's a, that's our problem yeah. it's all dying and browning and everything so it's yeah, that's the problem next is when we get too much rain, that's when people are going to start complaining. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, just being British, unfortunately. We're never happy when it's too hot, when it's too cold, when it's too rainy. <laughs> we're, uh, we're never happy, ever, ever. But one thing that I like to ask um, brewers in particular, um, obviously like to yourself, Ryan, is that obviously you brew these different styles and things and go to the machine is your most popular, most popular beer now. What, what style do you like drinking the most of? What do you find yourself going to? And obviously, like you say, a lot of, once you've had a lot of hazy IPAs, they kind of almost roll into one. What what would you, if you'd say, I'm going to have a drink, what would you normally turn to on an evening? Oh, man, probably like multi-German lagers. Like I'm kind of getting excited because, uh, you know, Oktoberfest season is right around yep. the corner. So mm. that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. Vienna lager is good. Um, mm. Like Samuel Adams Boston lager. I I got my hands on, like, I was drinking that on draft at a restaurant here recently, and I kind of fell back in love with it again. You know, it's just like, <laughs> oh, it's so good. Like, it's it's bitter, but it's also mm. got, like, some nice small character. And, yeah, I could drink three of them, you know, mm. and I wouldn't get tired of it. So Yeah. This always seems to do the rounds is that everyone says that this year is when craft lager is going to take off. You know, it's been, uh, you know, they've it's been gonna... saying that for the last like four years. It's yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure you guys have sort of breweries over there that specialize in lagers or sort of solely brew lagers. And we have a couple here, but they seem to do the rounds and sort of get, oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. Lager, lager, lager. And then it just seems to sort of die down a little bit of, yeah, yeah. But look at this New England IPA and it just all sort of yeah. goes away quietly. <laughs> And then, and then and then New Zealand releases like another another hop and then yeah just everyone mm. forgets about lagers for a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is it. And I think I've become to appreciate you know come to appreciate lagers a lot more in the last sort of twelve to eighteen months or something just to break things up a little bit. When you want something that's a bit more 
especially when it's been as warm as it has been these last few weeks here, is just something quite refreshing, quite, you know, you can drink it cold and you don't have to think about it too much. It's still got, like say, a nice bit about it or something that's still got a bit of bitterness or more hot flavour than you sort of the run of the mill mass produced lagers, but something that's still nice to drink, but not, you're not chewing it, if you know what I mean. Right. So it's just something nice to turn to that you can just sort of knock back and, and easily drink. But yeah. And kind of on that thread too, doing like the lower ABV stuff, um, like speaking of Cascale, I actually tried to do like a British dark mild ale at home. Mm. Uh, this was about a month ago and I put it in a cask and served it on a beer engine too. I had a party at my house and it was like 3.15% alcohol. Mm. It was, it was awesome. Cause you could just drink so much of that and it was hot outside. So it was perfect. Mm. Uh, I've also started liking that at home. Like I, I'll homebrew like and try and aim for like the ABV to be in the threes. So you can just hang out and enjoy more of it, you know, without ruining your productivity for the rest of the day, you know, on a Saturday or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that is, you know, during lockdown, I don't know if it was the same in the States, but here everything got silly. Everyone was double IPA, triple IPA. You know, if you got something that was <laughs> sub six or 7%, you were doing pretty well. Um, but now I think as everything sort of settled down a little bit and I, I suppose cost might come into it as much as anything that the sort of, like you say, that, four to four and a half percent that is it is session strength really you know session strength in this country especially seems to have gone like crept up to like five percent which is definitely <laughs> not not really that sessionable but yeah that sort of seems to have settled down now and we're seeing certainly a trend of people wanting to go out and have four or five or maybe six pints rather than going out and having a couple of halves or thirds and like you say just drinking quantity still quality but quantity of maybe the same or a few different ones that like you say they don't have to worry about waking up with a sore head the day after or you know with a chronic dry mouth or something so yeah it's it's interesting that 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 might be the same for both markets but yeah mild seems to have had a bit of a resurgence in this country recently as well so i don't know if that, that's the same over oh, there but oh, yeah yes yeah that's um which i'm not i'm not really a dark beer fan um, but fans of that beer seem to be quite dismissive of mild as a, as a thing. And a lot of people are like, no, mild, just not interested. But sort of more traditional breweries seem to sort of be resurging milds, dark milds, hopped milds, you know, all sorts of different variants of a mild has uh, come out of the woodwork this year for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I just like uh, I I did that just because I was like, oh, I want malty, easy to drink and low ABV. So it's just like, you know a mile they'll kind of fit that bill and i had a beer engine i needed to use i was like i need to use this thing for something so i may as well go authentic mm. yeah yeah it's not everyone's got a beer engine sat at home so you know that's <laughs> it's fair enough matters but like you say put it to go deal somewhere along the line haven't you so, yeah 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 i don't blame you mate. i don't blame you right so ryan as as uh, from from a uk perspective at least anyway we are sort of in the the high season of festival season events all these sort of weird and wonderful things that we've got going on and it seems to be that no weekend is safe without some sort of festival going on from one one brewery at their location or just a general beer festival that many breweries attend which again coming back to the size of our country and sort of the restrictions on sort of shipping and transport and things for making it easy do you find that there's sort of as many festivals over there obviously what what's it like over there in terms of does it, again does it differ from state to state and do you see many breweries able to come sort of out of their catchment area because of the restrictions of 
travel and transport and shipping or what what's the festival scene like over there it seems like things are kind of picking back up again from how they were pre-covid um but yeah i mean everything's different from state to state so usually what you've got to do is if we're going to participate in a festival done by a brewery in a different state usually we need to send the beer you work out like a temporary distribution agreement where you ship the beer to a distributor over there that has to like kind of be the handler of the beer mm. to get it over there. Um, and all the laws are a little different from state to state because, you know, it's a state type thing. Um, mm. So it can get kind of complicated sometimes. But usually like if a brewery is doing a festival, um, they usually have most of the legwork taken care of. So we just need to ship the beer. Um, mm. So it's not too difficult, but yeah, we participate in several festivals. We get invited to, you know, um, do festivals all over the country on the East coast, West coast. So too, too many to pos- possibly attend. <laughs> yeah. And like we do, we do send people, uh, we usually have somebody who goes, you know, like we have like a, a marketing liaison, you know, guy who's usually at most of those things. And uh, we might send a couple other people to, you know, to participate and hang out. Do you not do that as much or do you sort of just stay sort of as close to home as possible? Or? Yeah, I stay as close to home. Um, I'm usually not traveling for the festival festivals. Um, things I will travel on. I like going to do hop selection. Um, mm, okay which is coming up. That's like the beginning of early, mid September. Um, That's right around the corner. Uh, So I like doing that every year. I'm not going this year though, because I have a baby due right at that time. So I want to be, yeah, I'll be, (laughs) I'll be locked down at the house. Um, But normally I like doing that. And I go to maybe one collab a year, at least. You know, so I do a little bit of traveling on behalf of the brewery. Yeah. But... Get out where you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but like you say, when, you, when you've got a little on the way, speaking as a sort of a, a, new, a new father, you'll have more, much more important things to uh, to attend to than uh, as important as hop yeah. selection is, as important as hop selection is, which <laughs> I suppose is a, is a good point, really, because obviously you guys, we've been sort of the the biggest producers as a, as a nation for for these many, many great hops that we get. Do you guys go to, so obviously you like, have signed hop contracts to make sure you've got the, the right quantities coming in and things. But right, quantities. Do, do, do you guys go to the point of sort of like sponsoring the sort of the experimental varieties that come out, sort of like the, the sort of like the Akeem Achieve experimental varieties, or do you just sort of just stick to, to the ones that you know and that you love really? We're mostly sticking to the ones that we know. Um, that is one cool thing about hop selection though. They've usually got something you know, that you can go smell and check out while you're there. Um, and I have done some test batches with some of those like experimental number hops before. Um, some are weird and some are like really good. So it's kind of a mixed bag. It's interesting to do though. Like I remember there was one last year I did a, I remember the aroma notes on it. It kind of smelled like grape candy. It was very interesting, almost like a conquered grape, which I think would be more like, black currant candies over there in the uk you know but it's very like it smelled very purple <laughs> i guess it'd be a, <laughs> it smelled purple which is like weird for a hop you know you usually don't get that kind of like uh that kind of character from a hop it's usually citrus or tropical 
so that was interesting yeah yeah, um, yeah do, do you see i would like you say because it's more like sips and tropical do you find a lot of the experimental hop experimental hops are then just trying to almost replicate what is already available then or do you see some that are actually a bit like you know maybe what like what sabro has been recently that that was quite sort of different mm-hmm. in terms of like quite uh pineapple quite coconut a bit more like a pina colada coconut, yeah. do, do you find that many come out that are sort of quite as sort of maybe standout-ish as that or are they much are they all sort of a much of a muchness really yeah i think at least in the early phase they're they're all over the place so you see some weird oddball ones and you know for better or worse some of them are weird in a good way and some you're like eh, yeah there's a reason hops aren't like that yeah, <laughs> i don't yeah. want to put that in beer uh but uh yeah you definitely find more different stuff mm. Yeah, like yeah. that's unusual. That's outside of that typical, you know, citrus tropical paradigm that hops seem to have kind of coalesced around. Tags, mm. I imagine, obviously, you guys are probably the same over there. Is that we've sort of built this almost cycle now of everyone sort of looking on to the next, the next big thing and the, the next new hop or the next new style or mm-hmm. flavor or type and things. And it's there's going to come an end to that surely at one point that it's you know we accept that until maybe you know because obviously new england ipa came out you know like say sort of like 2014 that sort of thing which is eight years ago now but we've been in that cycle now and nothing really new has come out and i suppose that at some point we just have to accept that you know we're at that point now where we've got a real broad selection but we can't always chase something new and it's just almost about sustainability more than sort of trying to do something new and different each time i suppose yeah, one would think, but you never know, you know, who knows? Because, I mean, that's the whole idea, right? It's it's undiscovered new frontier territory. And, uh, I mean, especially speaking as an American, that's kind of in our blood, you know, to explore new territory. And the, the frontier is gone. We've, we've explored all the land territory. So now we're, you know, doing that in other ways, whether it's breeding new hop varieties or, you know, trying to go to mars or whatever big dreams we have you <laughs> yeah, know yeah. yeah until a new continent starts growing hops and they have these crazy new flavors or something then maybe right. we're a bit of a <laughs> potentially a bit of a standstill but what do, do you guys sort of use all types of hops in terms of the sort of leaf pellets oils what what do you guys usually use for so we're mostly doing uh, T90 pellets, and then we have some enhanced pellets there, you know, so like your Cryo Hops, Lubomax. Um, there's an American hop supplier, Crosby, that just in the last couple of months released their own version of enhanced lupulin pellets. Yeah. They call it CGX, mm-hmm. um, short for cryogenics. So that's kind of cool. So they, because they have Nelson Sauvin hops that they're purchasing through New Zealand, and they're creating cgx pellets with them so it's like the first enhanced you know nelson pellets out there so that's cool Mm -hmm. so you're kind of getting some new stuff that way it's not like a whole new paradigm shift you know it's just taking some of these more advanced you know technologies and just expanding them to more hop varieties but so we use some enhanced pellets we use some oil co2 extracts we're also using you know some of the like other enhanced oil products like that are designed more for like hot side whirlpooling that sort of thing yeah. so we're, we're kind of throwing everything at it no uh, it's cool and i think like you say it's it's all sort of you know experimenting things and and we, we obviously coming from over there you came chief released um cryopop in the last 
18 months mm-hmm. or so, maybe, I think. And we keep seeing sort of dribs and drabs that coming over. We had a couple of brewers that had signed sort of exclusivity with them and contracts with that. And has that boomed in America? Because it seems there's this sort of new experiment, sort of amalgamation of different hops to make this one hop. And then it seems to have like tailed off a little bit. So is that is that the same over there or is that sort of... Yeah, I mean, it, it made a splash in the beginning. And I actually did a test batch with it and it was good. Mm. I really liked it. Um, it was very, very fruity. Um, lots of like mango candy, pineapple, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. So I liked it a lot. Um, and I've seen some breweries using it in their beers, but yeah, it, it has, uh, it doesn't seem to have like taken over or anything. I also don't know how much they made. Mm. I think, I think it like they, they did a run of it and it kind of went out of stock. So mm. it may just not be available right now. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was almost like this, this, this amazing thing called cryopop and it's like, it's a blend of all these amazing things. It's like, but nobody really knew what it was a, a blend of. And it's like, you know, the more the theory behind oh, yeah. it, the theory behind it was great in terms of, well, it's getting more for less. You're getting more bang for your buck in essence, you know, you can get the best mm-hmm. of five hops in using this one hop, but then everyone seems like, well, yeah, but what, what is it you know it's almost a little bit what is it but like you say i suppose if you sort of just don't question it and say well i'm getting more more for my money and just chuck it in then you know yeah everyone's a winner i suppose yeah the idea was that you know basically when you just buy oil analysis you know this hop has this and that and then you just mix and match them to kind of just create this maximally aromatic you know profile um and i'm not sure because yet Yakima Chief did the, they released that information about, they called it survivables. Like those are oils that, you know, survive the hot side Mm. and tend to continue on to the finished beer. So they had analyzed a bunch of different hop varieties out there showing how, you know, how many survivable compounds they had. So the idea was if you focus on using those like in your whirlpool and stuff in the kettle, you're going to get more more bang for your buck like mm. you say more of those oils get carried over into the beer you know into the fermenter they don't volatilize away from the heat that was interesting i think that's the thing that some people don't realize and appreciate is that there's so much science in brewing isn't there it's not just a case of take your ingredients, oh yeah there is take, sure. take your ingredients just bung it all in and and it works it's not well, it's not that easy is it really because obviously yeah. you guys which you, you have sort of cold chain supply for obvious reasons because your climate's a lot warmer and things which we don't necessarily have in this country but it's like that and stabilizing which i spoke when i spoke to um paul from mortalis about it's sort of like the stabilization of their fruit sours and things it's like a lot of time and science and effort goes into things like that so even sort of from your side of things even without the sort of the sour side i imagine there's still a lot of that that goes on behind the scenes to make sure that the product is if it's on a shelf and it's not necessarily refrigerated that it stays you know it stays true to form as what you originally wanted to be right yeah and like the big thing that jumps out for that is oxygen you know oxygen is your enemy um post-fermentation so techniques and yeah just the science behind what to do to minimize oxygen exposure to your beer when you're packaging it or transferring it from tank to tank Mm, yeah yeah so do you guys just uh, obviously you said that um, like ghost in the machine was was bottled originally do you guys just solely can now or is there still sort of limited edition bottle rooms that that you guys do no it's it's still mostly bottles so the cans are like the special more limited thing okay um, which we just started doing recently. Yeah, we did the cans. So the cans are direct to consumer only. So we're selling to nine different states. You can buy it online and we'll ship it directly to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So, and is that I'm assuming is that from a sort of a an ease perspective, a sort of weight and packaging and storage and things like that? Was that the decision behind that, or? Yeah, it's also like legality. Like it's not legal to ship beer to all different states. You know, mm. all all the rules are different. We're basically, <laughs> you know, the United States. It's like. You know, I mean, the idea was, you know, you have a bunch of basically independent states that are banded together in a federation. So, mm. you know, that annoys a lot of people. But, you know, I mean, the the side effect of that is every state has a lot of different rules about everything. So it can make things it can make interstate commerce complicated sometimes. Yeah, so you're just trying to <laughs> trying to comply and get beer into as many people's hands as possible. Right. So yeah. yeah. The irony is it's probably easier to sometimes probably like us obviously just get it over here than it is to send it within within the country, which is just daft really. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> which is just crazy, which obviously is expensive, which is obviously why you know, it's it's very very sort of infrequent and rare that it does make its way over here as much as it would uh, be nice to have a constant supply of it. But obviously, it doesn't. It comes at a premium, doesn't it? Unfortunately, so yeah. And I mean, so supply chain wise too. You know, the farther away we're shipping beer from our brewery, the more expensive mm. freight is. So yeah, yeah. The farther you go from home for us, the you know the lower and lower our margin is. So that puts a priority on you know just being close to home and basically you just expand out mm. from there, you know, as you have the capacity to do that, you don't want to like, just go straight to Alaska or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. That doesn't make sense. If, if, you know, there's a state next door that you don't distribute to yet, that would be a viable market. You just, yeah, yeah. you would be forgoing that, you know, increased margin. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's it. But it's, it's interesting. Cause like, especially in this, I don't know if it's the same over, over there, but, a lot of breweries in this country find there's a massive demand for exporting to like Asia and places like that. And mm, that's of, interesting. Yeah, and a lot of sort of breweries, especially in this country, are sort of shipping out to it. Obviously, they're, they're seeing the home demand, like you say, they're making sure that there's enough home, you know, home supply there. But then, sort of brewing and sending like pallets worth of beer to to Asia and things, mm. so it inevitably takes time if it's going air freight or sea freight or whatever, which again draws different. <laughs> you know different problems of freshness and making sure it gets there safely and, and all those you know wonderful sort of yeah that people have but yeah it seems like there's a growing demand over there that seems to be fulfilled and i don't know if that's the same i don't know if you've noticed anything over there at all well or... well now that you mentioned that uh we do send every now and then we send like a pallet of beer to australia there's okay. like a distributor over there um and like a it's this specific, like, I think this like craft beer seller over there mm. that, uh, they just, they really wanted our beer and, uh, we were like, okay, if you want it. And they're like, yeah, we're going to, you know, arrange freight and everything. So it's like, okay. So <laughs> we send a bunch of beer over there and apparently there's a, you know, cause here in Louisiana, like we have, uh, the Cajuns. So there's like Cajun culture and cooking. Mm. And apparently there's a Cajun restaurant in Australia that, that wanted to carry our beer. So like they have our beer over there. Yeah, yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. Like all the way on the other side of the world. Mm. Well, I suppose that's sort of with sort of Australia and New Zealand becoming more renowned for their hop growing. You know, I suppose that's mm -hmm. part of the reason yeah. why that craft beer demand is growing. I think it's right to say that Australia is sort of a massive lager drinking nation, probably a lot of wine as well, again, from the sort of the the grapes and things that are grown in, mm -hmm. in Australia and New Zealand, respectively. So as that grows, I suppose the demand just just keeps on going so it's uh yeah all, all, all corners of the globe very uh very soon but yeah it's very it's very weird isn't it? australia of all sort of places it's 
it seems sort of like maybe an unknown. That's maybe that's the, the, the final frontier. Maybe that's maybe the sort of the, the final. Maybe I don't know, but uh, there's also like I mean, in uh, like north of them, you know, like just the the Asian continent. Um, I know because as standard of living, like in China in particular. So we actually we we have sent beer to China as well, and I think it's just because they have a growing middle class. So. You know they're starting to develop an interest in things like craft beer and stuff so they're they're clamoring for like american craft beers too and i suppose british too i imagine they're probably looking all over the place mm. at just what's out there yeah well that's it. i suppose in many respects it's probably from their perspective easier to to buy it in than probably start something up and try and make it and just make a, a hash of it i suppose it's easier to buy it in i suppose in many respects isn't it so you know it might cost more but it's probably less than somebody starting up a brewery and not making a crack of it. So. Yeah, which, I mean, I would expect, you know, eventually at some point they're going to start producing their own. You know, that's usually how it starts in, like, those sorts of cycles. First, you import it. Then you figure out how to do it yourself, you know, if you're a growing economy, and then you start producing it eventually. Because it doesn't take, like, that advanced technology. It's not like some advanced, you know, cutting-edge microchip technology. It's brewing beer. Yeah, yeah. Know? And I think a they, lot, can, yeah. they can figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of, I think it's probably right to say, like, um, you guys probably the same, is that a lot of our brewing equipment is sourced from, you know, Asia, China, that sort of place. So I suppose when they're making the equipment over there, it's probably cheaper to buy and install and things anyway. So. Yeah, that's true. Like, they're making all the tanks and stuff yeah. already. So <laughs> they've got half the battle. You know, they've done a half the battle yeah. there. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but Ryan, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of what we had to discuss um, and what, what I had down to talk about. So again, thank you for, for joining me and taking the uh, the time out to join me. So are you back to, is it brewing or are you back to sort of looking at your ingredients and sourcing and things? What, what What's the rest of the day hold for you? Yeah, mon- Monday is, uh, Monday is uh, counting inventory and making sure I have materials for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so yeah. That's my Monday routine. Yeah, yeah, a nice, nice, easy Monday for you, hopefully. So, yeah, fingers crossed, yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, yeah, thank you for joining, Ryan. But before we do leave, anyone that wants to follow Parish, who maybe aren't already, but I'm sure that they are, but where can people, either if listening in this country or America, where can people keep up to date with everything that's going on at Parish? Yeah, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Parish Brewing Company. Yeah, yeah. Easy yeah. enough. Yeah. Instagram and Facebook seem to be a, where it's at these days, doesn't it, for social yep. media? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can also look on our website. Um, uh, you can't, you can't order beer to ship to England, unfortunately. But you know, if anyone from the states is listening, and you know, you are in a state where you can buy our beer, you can get Ghost in the Machine cans direct to consumer now in select states. Excellent. So check it out. Yeah, yeah. And maybe one day, direct to consumer in England. Maybe one day, mate. Yeah, yeah. Maybe fingers one day. crossed. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no. But Ryan, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the uh, the ghost in the machine. So uh, next time it, uh, it it is available on our shows, I'll be certain to uh, jump in again, and maybe the uh, the double dry hopped version next time, and I do a uh, a side by side comparison. Oh yeah, that'd be good. Well, I'm glad you liked the. The single dry hop version. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, this was fun. Yeah, so yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, good. No, but thanks very much, mate. And I'll um, I'll speak to you again very, very soon. All right. Cheers. Welcome back. And thanks once again to Ryan for joining me. The can of Ghost in the Machine I drank during the show was superb. And it's worthy of all the hype it generates, both here in the UK and back home in the US. 
this can was sourced from Beers of America ahead of the recording, and I'll certainly look out for more. I found it very interesting that Ryan still homebrews and still has a massive passion for it, despite brewing full-time for Parish. It could easily feel like a bit of a busman's holiday, but if you enjoy it, it sure beats being stuck behind a desk for a day job. As always, thanks to you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this show as much as the previous shows. If you have any feedback, please do get in touch. Likewise, any and all subscriptions on your podcast platform of choice and a positive review will be massively appreciated. The more feedback and suggestions I get, the more I can tailor the podcast to you, the listener. Coming up in our next shows, I'll be back with Aaron, but this time we'll be brewing a beer over at Quirky Ales. Ahead of this, we're also doing a West Coast special episode, so no detective skills are really needed to guess what style of beer we'll be brewing. We can't wait, and hopefully you'll like our Brew Day special episode and the West Coast special episode. But until then, bye for now.